Today on Blue 58, Jordan Love exceeded expectations in 2023, but can we put some numbers to his success? And maybe beyond those numbers, there's a deeper question. Is Love a model for the rest of the league to follow? Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink, and I am happy to be with you here for another episode. I have a lot I want to talk about today, so I'm going to try to move quickly to make sure that we can get to all of it so that we have all of the next episode to talk about how the Packers stack up against the Dallas Cowboys. But I want to start with Jordan Love today. Longtime listener Eric texted me this week with a follow-up to something we talked about last summer, uh, asking about the statistical comparisons we put to Jordan Love and where he would have to to be to hit those benchmarks. Eric writes in, I remember in one of your previews you mentioned that a great bar for Love would be comparable with Jared Goff, assuming Goff played like he did last year. Looking at their numbers for the season, they're super comparable. I think it's worth circling back to see where Jordan Love stacks up against some of the guys that we compared him to in the preseason. I laid out five statistical, I guess, models, four statistical models for Jordan Love that I thought would be good for comparison's sake as as far as determining what his his uh, 2023 season was in terms of his success. Here they are. Uh, Aaron Rodgers in 2008, Aaron Rodgers in 2022, Justin Fields in 2022, and Jared Goff in 2022 as well. I picked those four because they, they represent different spectrums of quarterback play, Aaron Rodgers in 2008, of course, his his first year as the starter for the Packers. Uh, Aaron Rodgers in 2022, um, a the, the, the end of his career uh, with the Packers, obviously, and just the last starting quarterback we have the Packers, or to compare Love to, did they improve from last year to this year? Justin Fields may be a little mean-spirited in the comparison there, but the, the Bears heading into the season were pretty loud about the idea of having gotten onto the track where they they wanted to be and Fields being their guy and how he was going to take a big step forward and stuff like this. So the the statistical numbers we had to compare him to were 2022, where they thought he, he played really well. And then 2022, Jared Goff, I thought was a good benchmark for Love because he kind of led a sneaky good offense, had a career year, had a resurgent year. And was a kind of a toolsy prospect like Love was and was highly drafted as a result. So how does Love compare to those guys? First, the numbers. 2008 Aaron Rodgers, just over 4,000 yards, 28 touchdowns, 13 interceptions. Uh, 2022 Aaron Rodgers, 3,695 yards, 26 touchdowns, 12 interceptions. Justin Fields, you know what? The numbers don't really matter there. We're going to just breeze by him because Love is far ahead of him in every statistical category that matters. Fields has better rushing numbers. Golf clap there. And then Jared Goff in 2022, 44-38 in terms of yards, 29 touchdowns, 7 interceptions. Love for the year, 4,159 yards, 32 touchdowns, 11 interceptions. Just in terms of the raw numbers, he beats everyone in every category except for Jared Goff in yards and interceptions in 2022. Love's stats put him well ahead of the curve for just about everybody else. Digging a little bit deeper, the thing with Aaron Rodgers was that he always hated to throw interceptions. Even his first year, 2008, 13 interceptions is not tons and tons, at least I guess for me, someone who grew up watching Brett Favre play play quarterback, he was 
never afraid of an interception. But in 2008, Aaron Rodgers threw interceptions on 2.4% of his passes. Love beat that in 2023. He had an interception percentage of 1.9%. Not just fewer interceptions, but at a lower rate than Aaron Rodgers. It wasn't just because he threw fewer passes than he didn't. He just threw them at a lower rate than Aaron Rodgers did. And interestingly, I don't think it was because Jordan Love is especially cautious. I I think it just had a, a few plays that did not work out particularly well for him. A couple of interceptions that may not have been his fault. I think of the, the late interception uh, against the Raiders. Not his best throw, Uh, but certainly not necessarily bailed out by Christian Watson there either. Then similarly, both of the interceptions he threw against the the Pittsburgh Steelers, kind of in the same category there, not necessarily his fault, or at least on the last play of the Steelers game, your options there are so limited. You got to get it into the end zone. You got to throw it up in there at some point. You could quibble about whether or not that's where he should have thrown it, but the the chances of throwing an interception there are, are just high. So if you really want to drill down into it, Love could have had single-digit interceptions in 2023. It's not that far outside the realm of possibility. Then just to throw this out there as well, Love's success rate in 2023 was 47.6%. Partially a team stat, to be sure, but that's better than Aaron Rodgers in 2008 and in 2022. When he was dropping back to throw the ball, Jordan Love was successful at a higher rate than both 2000 Aaron, 2008 Aaron Rodgers and 2022 Aaron Rodgers. Now, Jared Goff. Uh, Love does not beat Goff in success rate. Love's statistical output, comparable, better in some areas than Goff from 2022. Not quite there in a couple of other areas, but certainly both of them had very good statistical seasons, Goff in 2022 and, and Love in 2023. And I, I said earlier that Love might be a good guy to compare to Goff because they were you know, both well-regarded prospects for some of their physical attributes. Uh, Goff, obviously, higher regarded coming out than Love was, though the, the strength of their quarterback class certainly plays a factor in that. Um, but I, I bring Goff up again for one, because of the comparison, but I also wonder, could he have developed into a better prospect if he'd gotten to sit like Jordan Love? Put a pin in that for a second. We'll circle back to that question. The other thing we talked about preseason was the idea that Jordan Love could be a top 10 quarterback by the end of the year. And if you recall correctly, I pointed out that that's actually not that high of a bar. It sounds great. It sounds great to say the Packers have a top 10 quarterback in Jordan Love, But keep in mind, there's only really 32 starting quarterbacks in the NFL, and arguably you could say there are less than that because there there aren't 32 teams that are completely set at quarterback. There are a bunch of teams out there that would gladly take the opportunity to switch quarterbacks with anybody. They would rather have, I don't know, a mid-tier starter. They would rather have a, a Jared Goff. They would rather have somebody who is not the the ultra-mega franchise quarterback type, but just somebody better than what they've got. And with that few, uh, with that small number of really like guys you feel good about in the league, getting to the top 10 may not necessarily mean all that much. However, we should also point out that Jordan Love did get into the top 10 in a bunch of statistical categories for 2023. And we can do that now because the 2023 regular season is over. We can talk about where he ended up. 
He ended up in the top 10 in yards. He was seventh. In touchdown passes, he was second. In passing yards per game, he was 10th. In adjusted net yards per attempt, my you know, favorite stat, he was 10th. In ESPN's quarterback rating stat, he was 9th. That's a pretty good statistical resume, and there's a bunch more where he's between, say, 10 or 16 or so. Even if he's just a top-half quarterback, I think the bottom line for 2023, whatever happens in the playoffs here, is that this was a really, really good first step for Jordan Love. I know the fun part of the discourse is to say the Packers did it again. They've got a future Hall of Famer in Jordan Love. Maybe that's true. This, regardless of where he ends up, is a good first step. If he gets 10% better than where he is right now, you've probably got a consistent, like, somewhere between four and eight quarterback in the NFL. And he does, I think, meet that threshold of being good enough to get hot and get you to a Super Bowl through the playoffs. I don't know if there's anything else you want from Jordan Love in terms of improvement. You would love it if you would get to be in that top one, two, or three category in the in the position in the NFL because then you're really set. But as of right now, I don't think based on what he did in 2023, you have any qualms about giving him the starting quarterback money and then seeing where things go from there. Hopefully he goes up in those categories from, from where he is right now, not sliding out of the top 10, which could happen, of course. Anything can happen in the future. But he's off to a really, really good and promising start. Now, to circle back to the question I raised about Jared Goff, does love prove that sitting guys can work? I don't have an answer for this question, but I think this is a a good opportunity to sit and consider what we've got in terms of evidence right now, at least as far as Jordan Love is concerned. Because Jordan Love is a pretty unique experiment here in recent NFL history. In fact, between him and Aaron Rodgers, there's really nothing directly comparable. You've got other guys that sat for a while, but nobody who sat for as long as Love or Rodgers did. Michael Vick sat for a while way back. That's getting to be very far in the, in the, his, in the, in the past now, 20 years ago now. But he sat for a while. Carson Wentz sat for a while. Patrick Mahomes sat for a while. Does that and does love prove that sitting guys can work? Or, or did love and Rodgers together, do they prove that this is how things should be done? I can see it both ways, and I think we should explore both sides of that. So let's assume he does say, how, he does prove that. How do, we, how do we know that that's a good argument? First, I think you can say he's clearly better than he was. He looks better than he did in 2021. We didn't see him at all in 2020 between the pandemic and just how that season went for the Packers. Jordan Love was firmly QB3 for that entire season. 2021, shaky. Uh, but he, he looks better now than he did in 2021. I think 2023 Jordan Love wins that game in Kansas City in 2021. I, I have very little doubt about that. He has undoubtedly cleaned up some of his issues. And I think there it's hard to put an exact sort of qualification or measurement on this. But he has matured as a person as almost all guys aging through their 20s need to do. And I don't think that can be discounted. There is value to sitting down. And if 
if you've been a guy who's been through their 20s or if you have known someone who was a man in their 20s, there is value to getting a guy that age and just sitting him down and say, let's cool your jets for a while. Let's just, let's get some stuff together. Let's figure out what we can do here. And let's, let's pick a direction from there. Not trying to do everything all at once. I don't think that can be discounted in pro sports. Giving guys who are in their early 20s, who are getting a bunch of money and a bunch of personal freedom for the first time in their lives in a way that they never have before, some time to adjust to that. That can't count for nothing. I'll never be convinced that that doesn't matter. Like giving them time to sort out who they are as a person really in a grown-up job for the first time, that, that has to have some value. And I have to imagine there was some value to that for Jordan Love, even being a pretty by all accounts, level-headed guy, uh, just from the get-go. All of that, I think, mattered. And I think that does prove that sitting guys can help to an extent. Now, on the other side, I think to some extent, guys that are good are always going to be good. May it take longer? Well, probably, if you just get thrown into the fire right away. Could you damage them irrevocably? Sure, we've seen that before, too. But if you look at it in terms of time, if you get a guy into the fire right away as a rookie and it takes him two or three years to improve, is that really any different than sitting him for two or three years? It also, you know, even if he he does take some lumps in there, there, there is some learning aspect and, and development from that too. Getting those live reps does matter. And I think we've seen that with Jordan Love this, this year too. Uh, he, he has improved just by being on the field. He has learned what he can get away with, what he can't get away with, what he needs to do to succeed. I mean, I'll give you a, a, a really easy example here. Go to profootballreference.com and look up how much Jordan Love is taking off and running in the second half of the season versus the first half of the season. I won't throw the exact numbers by on a game-by-game basis at you just reading numbers into the the microphone. We've done a lot of that on this episode. Um, But he just doesn't run as much in the second half of the season as he did in the first half. That, to me, screams quarterback who is learning. I think there, there is some value to getting those live reps. So I'm not sure that sitting him necessarily proved that there was a difference between just getting him on the field right away. The bigger question is probably, and always will be, why don't more teams try this? If it can work, if it can get you an Aaron Rodgers, who I don't think would have been as good had he started as a rookie uh, in 2005. Just look at his mechanics as a rookie, vastly different from where he ended up in 2008. Uh, Love, too. He, just look at his college tape versus where he is in 2023. Vastly, vastly different. So why don't more teams do this? If it can work, why would you not try it more often? I think it comes down to timing and job security. Really just two ways of saying the same thing. If you're going to sit a guy for three years, you're going to need stability. And Ty Dunn uh, of, well, I guess Ty Dunn's Go Long is, is where he lives on the internet now, pointed out a version of this back in 2020 Basically, if this plan was going to work, it had to be in a place like Green Bay because what they had was stability at a bunch of different levels at the organization. They have an owner 
air quotes, who isn't really an owner in Mark Murphy. You've got a general manager who's got a Hall of Fame quarterback in place, who has job security there, and who has the blessing to do whatever he wants to do from that de facto owner. And you've got a coach who had already been to the NFC Championship game once, who was brought in to do whatever he was going to do with Aaron Rodgers, uh, but also for the the post-Rodgers stuff. They had unique stability. And if you're going to sit a guy for a few years, you need that stability. You need a very, very long-term vision. Your GM and your coach probably both have to believe their job is safe until well into the time when your young quarterback is going to be on the job. Whether it's a year or two years out or three years out, most guys do not have the luxury of that kind of time. Gutekunst and Lafleur certainly did, and that was one of the reasons that this did make sense from the get-go. That's one of the areas where they they had a strong case that look, we could we could go, we could we can make this happen, we could at least try it because we're not going to get run out of town because of an impatient owner. That is probably why more teams not just don't do this, but can't do this. Related to all of this, Carl Anderson in our Discord server offers up this question, and it's something that shouldn't go undiscussed when it comes to Love's development here. He says, John, I liked your talk around Gutekunst putting good things around Love to help him succeed, but you didn't mention Tom Clements. I can't help but wonder what happens if he's not recruited in 2022 and instead uh, the Packers promote some internal unproven coach for their quarterback's coach job. Would we have seen the same progress from Love? And who gets credit for the Clements hire? Matt LaFleur, Brian Gutekunst, or someone else? A very good question and, and an oversight on my part to not bring that up, but Tom Clements has been a big part of Love's development. We've harped on Love's footwork from the word go. That's always been something that's been a bit of a question mark for him. And he does have some non-traditional footwork now, but it's it's different uh, in in the way that he uses his feet. And that is something that Tom Clements has harped on from Aaron Rodgers to Jordan Love now. And I think that is a, a lot of credit to a couple different parts of the organization here. First, Matt LaFleur being willing to listen uh, to get a hire that maybe he wouldn't have gone with otherwise. Willing to listen to who, though? Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers wanted Tom Clements in 2022. He was a guy he was comfortable with, a guy he had worked with before, and a guy who helped him you know, improve a lot of things about his own game. That is, I, I don't think can be discounted. For all the, the crap that people give Aaron Rodgers for who he is as a recruiter, he has success with some of the guys that he recruits. I mean, Alan Lazard has gotten a lot of flack for the, the year that he's put up here, but he wasn't bad in 2022. Uh, and Aaron Rodgers was part of his development in a big way too. He was banging the table for for Alan Lazard to to get more reps uh, back in 2019. But it it all kind of comes together with Aaron Rodgers putting that out there and and Love being willing to listen listen and make the offer and Tom Clements sticking around after 2022 as well. That is a big part of Jordan Love's development. I don't know if you can say what you would have seen from Love if if Clements hadn't been there, but certainly he seems to be a big part of this this uh, this development. Now for something completely different. I wanted to take a second and talk about some of our other custom stats that we track at thepowersweep.com. If you head over to thepowersweep.com and click on the resources page, you can see all of the things that we track in these categories. Aaron, uh, Jordan loves adjusted net yards per attempt, uh, numbers on, on a year-over-year basis, game-by-game basis, 
explosive plays, a bunch of pass rushing stats, uh, and our ball hawk index. And those were the, those are two of the ones that I wanted to talk about today. The Packers' explosive plays and the plays that they are making on the ball. Matt LaFleur said when he arrived in Green Bay that creating chunk plays was something that he wanted to do. And until recently, I actually don't think we ever got confirmation about what he meant by those chunk plays or explosive plays. But according to a recent uh, revelation in a, a press conference um, he did recently, it was after the Buccaneers game, in fact, he said that they allowed 15 or 14 explosive plays in that game. And looking back at the the, the big plays that the uh, Buccaneers put up in that game, um, it, it became clear that the dividing line there for an explosive play in Lafleur's mind is 15 yards. We use different categories for that. Uh, it's what the Packers used back when they had a, uh, invented some of their own advanced analytics. It's what some other uh, traditional coaches around the league have used. Uh, it, an explosive play in our book is 12 yards for a run and 16 yards for a pass. In those, by those numbers, the Packers recorded 113 and possibly 114. There's one play I have to go back and verify um, in the 2023 season. Either one of those numbers, 113 or 114, would be the highest of the Matt LaFleur era and the most they've had in a season since 2018 when they had 116. Had they played all season at the pace they did in the second half, this would have been one of the better offenses we've seen in the 21st century. They would have had totals comparable to the 2011 and 2014 seasons. That's how good the Packers were down the stretch. And just to put a number on it, 2014, uh, the best number, best season I have on record for the Packers in terms of explosive plays, they had 133 that year. That was with Jordy Nelson at the peak of his powers, Randall Cobb, his best statistical season, and a young Devontae Adams providing quite a bit in terms of what the Packers did through the air as well. That is, the Packers this year would have been in the ballpark there had they been able to keep up the pace they uh, posted over the second half and the first half of the season. That says a lot about where this young offense is. Then ball hawks. Plays on the ball matter. Uh, I have been, well, I don't want to spoil it. I don't want to get to the end here before we, we talk about the beginning. But plays on the ball matter. And the Packers as a team this year actually improved over last season in the uh, in their regular season numbers. This year, the Packers had 129 plays on the ball as a team. As a refresher, a ball hawk is a sack, a forced fumble, a pass defense, or an interception. 129 as a team this year. That was more than 2022. But still their fewest, their second fewest since 2019. The big reason for this is that the, the Packers linebackers and defensive backs both saw big decreases in their ball hawk output. If you want to put two names to it, Devondre Campbell and Jair Alexander are the two biggest single culprits. They have either been unavailable or just not making plays when they have been on the field. Missing Rasul Douglas certainly didn't help the Packers' overall numbers here, but it seems fair to say that regardless of whose fault it is, they could use more playmaking in this area on defense in general. Ideally, your ball hawk leaders are going to be in the secondary and linebackers. The other guys that are piling up plays on the ball are the the pass rushers, defensive linemen and edge rushers. That's not really what you want in terms of plays on the ball. That should be a part of it. It shouldn't be your main source of these, though. Packers top three this year in terms of plays on the ball. Preston Smith with 14, Kenny Clark with 12.5, and, and Rashawn Gary with 12. The question I've had on Ballhawks for a while now is whether or not 
this is we've seen a league wide decline on this, or whether the top defenses in the NFL are still making a lot of plays on the ball. Early in the Dom Capers era, the Packers were putting up incredible numbers in terms of their plays on the ball. Uh, up in the the 170s in both 2009 and 2011. 175, in fact, both of those seasons. Since then, the Packers have steadily declined in terms of their plays on the ball. They haven't had more than 144 in a season since 2016, or since 2019. 2016 was the last time they broke 150, and they have only done that once 2015 to the present. So eight years, they've only been over 150 once. I've long assumed that that just is uh, reflective of a league-wide trend. I've I've thought that with the way that uh, quarterbacks play now, with the way that defenses are built, with the way that offenses play, the defenses just don't have as many opportunities to make plays in the ball. According to research I've done today, that is actually not the case. Top defenses are still getting their hands on the ball a lot. Uh, the top five defenses by EPA this year, just to pick one number that is not just yards or points uh, to determine you know, who is a top defense. But in, in terms of expected points, I guess allowed in, the, in this case, the top five defenses this year in the NFL are Cleveland, Baltimore, the New York Jets, the, the Dallas Cowboys, and the New Orleans Saints. In order, those five defenses produced 170 and a half, 185 and a half, 166, 149, and 159 ball hawks this season. The halves in there from Cleveland and Baltimore have to be an error in my calculations. You can't end the season with just half a ball hawk because that would be just half a sack. That would mean somebody only had half a sack this year. In any case, whether it's 170 or 171 for the Browns, or 185 or 186 for the the Ravens, these top defenses are producing a lot of plays on the ball. The Packers have not had a defense that would have been in this group since 2016, and only barely in that case would they have made it uh, with 152. They would have just nudged out the the, uh, Dallas Cowboys. This is one area where the Packers need to be looking to improve. It shows that they need to add talent, and it shows that they need to to be able to add, I don't know if it's aggression, or it, they need to add an element to their defense where guys have a chance to make more plays on the ball. If there's one, if you if you were going to encapsulate the Joe Barry defense in a, a short phrase, I would say passive and conservative, by and large, determines his uh, defines his overall defense. He's he's fairly passive. He doesn't like to bring a lot of extra pressure. Uh, the Packers get regularly, not regularly, but are often described as a team that blitzes a lot. That is technically true by one measure. They bring a lot of five-man pressures a lot, and technically that is a blitz. It's a pretty lame blitz if you think about it, and it's not usually terribly creative. Uh, the Packers just have five guys on the line of scrimmage a lot of times, and that's what ends up creating what looks like a, a five-man pressure, which technically is a blitz. I think overall, if you're looking for for changes in the Packers' defense, whether it's Joe Barry running the show next year, and let's let's hope that's not the case, whether it's Joe Barry or somebody else, the Packers need to be more aggressive at, at a personnel level, and they're going to need more talent than the secondary to do that. They're going to be need to be more aggressive um, uh, schematically, philosophically, 
and they're just need going to need to be less passive. They need to be more aggressive as a defense because they make plays on a ball. On the ball, you can't sit back and wait for them to come to you. I think that's all I've got for you in this episode of Blue 58. Didn't get to everything I wanted to talk about, but I've already kept you for nearly half an hour. We've covered a lot of ground and talked about a lot of different statistical things. Uh, maybe we'll add in some listener questions here at the end of the next episode because I had three of them, and I, I want to make sure everybody gets a, a fair amount of time and uh, that I can spend some good time with each of those questions. So I think that's what we're going to do at the end of the next episode uh, as we look to uh, the Packers' wildcard round game with the Dallas Cowboys. We'll take some questions them as, then in addition to our normal preview. But in the meantime, that is all I've got for you in this episode of Blue 58. I appreciate you tuning in. I would appreciate it even more if you'd take a second and share this episode with someone you think would enjoy it. It's going to help more people find the show and get more people involved in this conversation you and I are having about the Green Bay Packers, which in turn is going to help all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.